This is Inside Berkeley. I'm Kim Ashton. On this special edition of Inside Berkeley, the Burns' Zach Kuhn sits down with Berkeley President Roger H. Brown. In their wide-ranging chat, they cover everything from Brown's early days doing humanitarian work in Cambodia to more recent issues, such as how Berkeley is trying to tackle college affordability and how Berkeley College of Music's merger with the Boston Conservatory, an agreement Brown helped spearhead, will benefit students in both institutions. Also, Kuhn asks Brown about the first album he ever bought and about what's on his playlist today. Let's take a listen. Roger Brown, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so excited to have you here. It's great to be here, Zach. So a lot of people were asking what I was going to ask you. I was telling a lot of people about this interview and trying to get a lot of people to listen to it. And they said, what are you going to ask him? And there's two things I really want to talk about. I really want to talk about your time before coming to Berkeley because Uh I think it's so interesting. Uh And I also want to talk a little bit about the merger Uh that we've done because we're right in the middle of that. Billboard magazine called us a conservatory on steroids. This is the first semester that, or the first fall semester that we have officially merged. How's it going? What can we expect to see in the future with it? And can we just get a little bit, little bit of an update on it? Yeah, well, we're very excited about the merger. And I'm not sure I would have used the term conservatory on steroids, but maybe <laughs> a, a turbocharged conservatory. Um, because I think there are a lot of opportunities that, that this offers us. So uh, I'll give you a few examples. One of the number one things Berkeley students are interested in these days is musical theater. And our musical theater club is the largest volunteer club at Berkeley with over 400 members last time I checked. We have the music director of Hamilton is a Berkeley alum. The musical director of Wicked, Kinky Boots, and Book of Mormon is a Berkeley alum. So we are already making a mark on Broadway and in musical theater, not just in the U.S., but around the world. But now coupled with one of the top three musical theater conservatories in the country at Boston Conservatory, I think the opportunities for our students and their students are only going to get more intense. Um, Likewise, a lot of our students are interested in more commercial popular music. Commercial popular music is not segmented from dance. If you're gonna if you're gonna audition for Justin Timberlake or Beyonce, you're gonna be auditioning as much as a musician as you are a performer, someone on stage. You're gonna need to have some stagecraft. You're gonna need to be able to move. So uh, we hired our first hip hop dance teacher, Dwayne Lee Holland. He's doing elective dance classes in hip hop and modern dance for Berkeley students. I'm told they're fully subscribed. I hope they're going well. I haven't heard a report on it, but I'm assuming they are. Um, And so there are going to be a lot more opportunities for Berkeley students to do dance. There will be opportunities for our serious classical musicians to play in in the orchestra at the conservatory. And likewise, for conservatory students who might want to study film scoring, music therapy, music business. Right now, if you're a music student at the conservatory, you're on a performance track. And if you decide two years into it, hey, I'm I'm not as excited about that as I used to be. Or you start thinking, I'm probably not going to get that gig at the New York Philharmonic. Maybe there's another path you want to take. Maybe you want to write for television. Maybe you want to be a music therapist. I think we can now make those opportunities available. Great. It it seemed like when it was first announced, everyone was a little bit unsure about it. They were like, where is this going to go? But as far as I, it just seems like it's a win-win from everyone. Both parties are going to get so I think in the beginning, there were two sets of fears. On the Berkeley side, I don't think there was that much fear, but a little bit like, hey, are we going to become a conservatory? Right. (laughs) We're here because we don't want to be a conservatory. Um, so th- I'm not the least bit worried about that because Berkeley is, is on a path. We're, we're, we're rocking and rolling, and I don't think anything's going to get in the way of that. The fear on the conservatory was a little bit the opposite. 
oh, hey, are we now not going to be a conservatory? Are we going to be expected to be like Berkeley and sort of uh, dilute what we do in the classical music arena? And my view is no. We're already very good at what we do, but you're really good as a classical conservatory. You're really good at dance and you're really good at music theater. You know, in the same way that our music therapy department and our electronic production and design department have very different cultures, likewise, these different programs are going to have different cultures, but there'll be a lot of opportunities for students to interact and intersect with them, and I hope give them an even richer experience. Great. So it's so cool. I'm so excited to see what happens with it in the future. Yep. So I, I want to talk about your past a little bit before coming to Berkeley. You graduated college. We're going back to way yep. way back, not too far back though. You graduated college and then you found yourself in Kenya teaching math. You were drumming with an award-winning gospel ensemble. Yep. You spend some time there. Then you come back. You're here for a little bit in the States. And then you go to Cambodia to help. And I'm taking this from your bio to help alleviate a humanitarian crisis on the Thai-Cambodian border. What was happening in this area at this time, and how did you find yourself in that position? Well, one of the common themes of my life is I've always been an avid musician and drummer, probably not uh, of the caliber of most of our Berkeley students, (laughs) certainly not the Berkeley faculty. But, you know, in in the other worlds I was in, I was a, a decent drummer, and I got hired for gigs, and I had a good time. So I was always passionate about music, but my my career choices led me abroad. So I did the math and science teaching in Kenya. And if you know Sammy Lutomia, who works at the 1140 building, his father was my boss. His wow. father was the headmaster of the school I taught at in Kenya. He was two years old at the time. And then uh, what had happened in Cambodia is, if, if you know your history, uh, the Khmer Rouge was this very radical government that took control of Cambodia after the Vietnam War and for four years ruled with a brutal, brutal iron fist. So from 1975 to 79, millions of people starved to death. Literally about a third of the population was either killed or starved to death. And when the Vietnamese overthrew the Khmer Rouge, there was this influx of refugees into Thailand and people going back to Phnom Penh. It was a total humanitarian nightmare. So my wife and I and a friend of ours went over and worked on the Thai-Cambodian border trying to get more food into the country, get implements so people could go back to their farms and start farming again. We tried to distribute seed to people. We were trying to reunite orphans with their families who might have been lost, trying to help people resettle to other countries. So I did that for a year. And um, and how did you... How did you, did you just hop on a plane and land in no. Cambodia or how did you? That was the hardest job I ever got. <laughs> uh, we, we went and interviewed with uh, humanitarian organizations for about six months. And finally, a, a group called CARE hired us. Uh, and then once I got over there, CARE gave me to UNICEF. So I was actually working for the United Nations okay. Children's Fund when I was there. And while you were there, you were playing with musicians who were there. Was it hard to find these musicians, or how did you tap in to that group? I I found a band in Thailand that I played with, and they were more like a pop cover band. I still remember they loved that Billy Joel song, You May Be Right. Oh, right. The classic. Yeah. (laughs) They loved that, and they were great at playing it, but none of them spoke any English, so they sang everything phonetically. They had no idea what the lyrics meant, but they sang. If you didn't know that they didn't speak English, you wouldn't have known that they were singing phonetically. (laughs) And then one thing I did in the refugee camps is the Cambodians have this very plaintive traditional music 
that's played on an instrument that this two-stringed violin-like instrument. This uh, in in China is called the erhu. This is very similar to that. They call it the tro. And um, so, one of the things the Khmer Rouge did was they killed musicians because they thought musicians were decadent bourgeois people. Uh, they had this very radical interpretation of Marxism where they thought anyone who had been part of the bourgeoisie should be killed, and musicians were included. So all the musicians had either died or gone underground. So one thing I did in the refugee camp I was working in is I invited them to all come back out, get their instruments together. We went into a rice warehouse and recorded a cassette of the mu- beautiful music, really beautiful stuff. Wow. There was one of the most famous violinist of all Cambodia living in our refugee camp. So we got him on tape and I got a little bit of money from UNICEF and we actually gave the tape out to people and soon you could hear this music playing from all corners of this refugee camp. Amazing. How are the acoustics in the rice facility? Unbelievable. It <laughs> wow. was filled with 100 kilogram sacks of rice. So it was a very, very, you know, very dead room, you know, very, very uh, sound absorptive. So it gave us good sound isolation uh, no, no outside noise got in, and it was it was fantastic. Worked pretty well. Amazing. And how did you engineer it? We just had a Nagra tape recorder. It was direct to two track, if you will. Uh, so no 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 mixing, no overdubs. Just just put it down. And these are these are like serious musicians. They they were pretty sophisticated. So cool. So Berkeley is one of the largest music education online programs. Thanks to you. How else is technology changing the college experience? Well, not thanks to me. Thanks to an amazing team at Berkeley Online led by Davy Cavalier, who's an alum of the college, and Karen Nuremberg and Mike King and a bunch of excellent people, including a bunch of alumni who are working there. Uh, But I think, you know, so we have this amazing reputation as a place where you can learn jazz and American contemporary music and now music from all over the world. But as we know, it's very expensive to come here. A lot of people can't even get visas to come, even if they have the funds. So the thought is, is there a way we can make that available to people all around the world who can't necessarily afford to be on the physical campus? So we now have 6,000 students who are taking courses with us online every year. We've had over 2 million take MOOCs, massive open online courses, which are free. And some of those students actually take the free course and say, hey, I'd like to take a paid course. So they upgrade, if you will, to a paid course. And some of those students are so talented, we say, you should really be on this physical campus. So we give them support and scholarships to come to the physical campus. So I like to think of it as an ecosystem where what we're doing with the MOOCs gets the the, the news out about who Berkeley is, and people can do something like study improvisation with Gary Burton, or they can study guitar with Thaddeus Hogarth, or they can study some basic introductory music theory with George Russell. And if they love it, then they fall in love with Berkeley. And, uh, and, you know, we've, we've sort of educated people all around the world about what Berkeley is. So great. Are there any education issues that are keeping you up at night right now and that we're trying to fix? The biggest problem we have is student debt and the, and the, the affordability question. Like so many students are struggling to be here. They're borrowing too much money to be here. Some have to drop out. Some leave here with too much debt. And it's hard to move to Brooklyn or L.A., and pursue your music dreams if you're worried about your debt burden. Right. So the biggest thing that keeps me up at night is not so much educational. I think when it comes to the education, obviously we could be better. There are lots of things that need to keep changing and improving. 
you know, we're going to we're we're hoping to offer some computer science classes, for instance, for because a lot of our alumni end up going into technology related fields. But it's not the education that worries me so much as the cost of the education. So I'm trying to raise more money to help give scholarships to students. We're trying to use online so that if someone can't continue to be on the physical campus, they can study at lower cost online or they can do some online courses before they come. So we're just trying to be very creative and innovative about how to make the place more affordable. Great. So you had mentioned that one of the things is people dropping out. I know Berkeley has a particularly bad rap of having students drop out. What do you tell people to convince them to stay and to get their education? Well, I have a bunch of things I say. First is the, the bad rap is, is a little bit outdated. Right. We are now graduating about two-thirds of our students. It used to be 30%. So we're actually about the norm for private four-year colleges in the United States. So we're better than people think we are. And there's this other nefarious rumor that if you're really talented, you drop out, that if you somehow stay and finish, you must not be very good. Right. <laughs> that might have been true in the 1960s when, uh, when um, uh, Woody Herman or Buddy Rich came through town and hired a bunch of Berkeley students. But I'm fond of pointing out that Christian Scott was a magna cum laude graduate. Justin Tranter, this great songwriter who wrote centuries for Fallout Boy, he was a magna cum laude graduate. Esperanza Spalding graduated. A lot of very, very successful people did graduate. So the, the, the sort of nefarious thought that if you graduate, it must be a sign that you're, you're not that talented is just simply not true. Other people drop out occasionally because they get a great gig. And my view of that is if we've helped you get that gig and you feel prepared and you think it's the time to go, God bless you. We support you. If it turns out that you want to come back, we welcome you. If you want to finish online, you can do that. But the thing I say to people all the time is in 21st century United States of America or the world at large, a college degree is almost an essential element for getting even the most basic jobs. And we know a college graduate is going to earn over a million dollars more in his or her lifetime than a high school graduate. So unless you have a compelling reason to leave, you should stay and get that degree. Great. Um, as a leader, what do you think are some important leadership skills that you think people at Berkeley would benefit from knowing? Wow. Um, <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot with that one, maybe. <laughs> I, I think the number one job of the leader is to try to collectively formulate a vision for what the future should look like. And you don't want to do it in an autocratic way by saying, this is what I think it should look like. But you don't want to wait for the whole institution to come to consensus because it never will. There will be strong opinions on both sides of every issue. So the leader's job, I think, is to convene people, listen to people, create opportunities to have that kind of dialogue, but at some point help the institution emerge with the sense that we want to be number one in the world in online education. We want to be more affordable and drive down student debt. We want to improve our graduation rate. We want to have a campus in Valencia, Spain. Those kind of things, they just don't happen without someone helping coalesce a sense of consensus and a vision for what the future should look like. So I think... The same is true in a band. You know, a band can sit around and practice all day long and write songs, but somebody's got to have a vision. It may be the collective or it may be a leader who says, here's what we need to look like. Here's what we need to, here are the goals we need to set for ourselves. So I think that kind of visioning is, is effective whether you're running a recording studio or whether you're trying to start a, a venue or whether you want to have your band be successful. Great. 
what type of world do you think we're graduating into as musicians? And are, are there a couple things that you think are so essential for every student to get out of Berkeley when they come here to be fully prepared for the world ahead of them? Well, I'm personally of the opinion that the idea that there's a single thing that every single Berkeley student needs is, is wrong. I think we have a very diverse group of people, some of whom want to, they want to go be, you know, pure jazz purists. And then we have other people who want to write scores for feature films. Their needs are very different. So I think we need to keep asking ourselves, we need to create a very diverse ecosystem that supports students in very different goals. But I have to say, I think the world Berkeley students are entering is incredibly exciting. It's, it's, it's fraught and difficult, but music has ever been that way. It's not like, I mean, the times are bad in some ways, but in some ways they've never been better. I mean, you look at all the Berkeley alums writing for television and film, and there's never been a longer list, and they're doing really well. Same thing I was talking about musical theater. And we are, we are a dominant force in musical theater. Um, and then there are lots of other jobs. The number one employer of Berkeley alums is not Sony Music, it's Apple. Why? Because Apple has GarageBand, which was helped. Cre- it was created by a lot of Berkeley alums who helped write it. They've got Apple Music. They've got iTunes. And then a lot of people move into the technology sphere. So um, I likewise think that you're seeing burgeoning music industries in other countries, like in India and China and Korea and Japan, Latin America. So a lot of those are populated with Berkeley alumni who are actually helping create this new global music industry, when it used to be really a UK, US, with a little bit of Australia and New Zealand and Canada sprinkled in. Now, now the biggest YouTube video ever made was made by a Berkeley alum who happens to right. be Korean <laughs> in Korean. So the opportunities that creates are just immense. Amazing. Can I ask what's on your playlist right now? What What have you been listening to? Um. Well, my number one, I checked because I wanted to, to not to not make this up. My number one uh, most played songs were all Pat Metheny. Pat Metheny is probably my favorite musician. But in terms of new stuff, I, I, I've been listening a lot to Kamasi Washington and that three, cool. three albums set he did, which I, I find uh, exciting, interesting, creative, a little inconsistent, but really, really uh, very cool. Um, there's this Berkeley alum, Sierra Hull, who just won the uh, International Bluegrass Music Amazing Association Award for Mandolin. I, I love her new record because it's very adventurous. It's She was on this pure blue, bluegrass track, and she took a hard left turn, and it's very exciting to hear. There's another contemporary of hers, Sarah Jarose, who's also in that sort of rootsy space, uh, who almost went to Berkeley and didn't, but I'm a big fan of hers. Uh, I, I heard this band at Freshgrass called... Lau, L-A-U, it's this sort of British folky electronica band. They're very, very cool. Um, and then I listen to stuff that students and alumni are doing. I'm, I'm a big fan of Lucius, big fan of King, if you know that trio. Um, and so I try to keep up with what you all are doing while you're students and what you're doing after Berkeley. Great. So I'd love to do a little speed round of some questions. This okay. will make perfect sense, I promise. Um, the first, what was the first album you ever bought? Mountain Climbing by Mountain. Oh my God! And do you still listen to that album ever? Or I is love it... that. That's a great album. Amazing. I and mean, was do you that... know it? Uh, I know Mountain. I I don't know what is. It's got Mississippi, Mississippi Queen. Queen. It's got for Yasgur's Farm. It's got Theme for an Imaginary Western. All three. Oh, amazing it sounds songs. like me. And was did, did that inspire you to pick up drums? That album? Nope, nope. I, I had I had been listening to music before I bought an album. 
uh, I cut my teeth on Credence Clearwater Revival. Wow. That's the music I learned to play drums to when I was, you know, <laughs> a, a middle schooler. Um, yeah, and then I had some other records. I had a Petula Clark downtown, which you, you may not know, but that, that was a great record, uh, kind of old school. But Mountain was the first one I kind of bought with my own money and felt like I owned it. Cool. The first concert you ever went to? Yes. Yes. Wow. In, in Atlanta, Georgia. We didn't get much live music. I grew up in a little tiny town uh, up in the mountains of North Georgia. So I'd gone to see things like this hokey thing called Up With People, which is kind of a religious performance. But the first real concert I saw was Yes. Do you remember Atlanta. anything about it? I remember that it was the loudest thing I'd ever heard in my <laughs> life. And they had this guy, Rick Wakeman, playing about a billion keyboards. And... uh their music was very, you know, harmonically and rhythmically interesting. So I was, I was impressed. They're, that was a very strong band, and so cool. Yeah. Who was the best teacher you ever had, or one of the ones that you felt had a really big influence on you? Um, I had a teacher in middle school named Marcellus Barksdale. Our schools had just been desegregated, and I had been told by a lot of the white people in my town that that was not a good thing because. The black teachers were going to be inferior to the white teachers. And it turns out the best teacher I ever had in my school was this guy, Marcellus. And he was a history and political science teacher, super smart, super challenging, young, ambitious. He ended up being the chair of the African-American Studies Department at Morehouse. And I reconnected with him about five years ago and told him the big influence he'd had on my life because after studying with him, I no longer believe these people who said that, you know, the schools were going to be inferior because, in fact, the best teacher I ever had, I wouldn't have had had it not been for desegregation. Wow. What's your favorite part of being president of Berkeley? Getting to see students and alumni do their thing and getting to see you all in an arc where you come in as, you know, young people full of optimism and excitement. And then you go through this, the death march where like third or fourth semester Everybody's exhausted and worn out and having ex existential doubts about what you want to do with your life and do I really want to go to Harmony 4 and is it all worth it? And then seeing all that come together at the end and people going out into the world and making their mark. It's nothing, nothing to me more exciting than a student I used to know having some success. So great. And is that the most rewarding part of it also? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and just the relationships, not not only seeing you in progress, but, you know, having real friendships with people who were here when I first got here and and the relationships among the faculty and the staff. I feel like I've made some very close friends, people I just admire and respect so much. And, you know, as you get older, I just turned 60. You realize all the achievements and stuff, they, they get dusty and musty, but for friendships and relationships and the people you impact and influence, that's that's really where the action is. Great. Well, Roger, thank you so much okay, for taking so the time to talk to us. My we, pleasure. We really appreciate it. Okay. Take care.